Uh, Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us through your word and that through your words we can know you uh, and you reveal yourself to us. Father, we pray uh, that you would indeed continue to stir your church here at Paco, that uh, as we've been learning through Haggai, uh, these words spoken many years ago are still so relevant to your church today. Father, we do meet many obstacles in this life, in the Christian life, in seeking to glorify you with our lives, troubles from without and within. Father, I pray that uh, you would indeed speak to us now through these words, uh, through your prophet Haggai, uh, that you would help us to live as your people uh, in the face of difficulty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we do come to... Haggai's last uh, message, uh, spoken those many years ago. At first, what we've read and what Alex read for us today might seem a little bit peculiar. For one, it's very short, only four verses long. And so as a reader, and if you've perhaps only heard these words spoken for the first time today, you might think, well, what is here that we can learn from just four verses? Number two, its details can be a bit foreign to us, and so could be quite confusing to hear. You might be forgiven for thinking, what is these words really all about? And thirdly, they can seem a little bit unbelievable. It speaks of the shaking of the heavens and the earth. You might be forgiven for thinking, I haven't heard of such event like this ever occurring. How can this prophecy even be true? And yet, when properly understood, God's message here is just as powerful and potent as it was in the day Haggai first spoke it. And actually, perhaps even more so, given that some of this prophecy has now been fulfilled. Uh, I wonder if any of you like the game Pictionary. Uh, I was kind of playing it a little bit before with the kids, in some ways. It's a great game. I love playing that game myself. Well, imagine that God himself is kind of playing Pictionary here in the text, where here in our passage, God paints for us a picture of the word victory. God then, with intentional brevity and with broad strokes of a brush, paints a picture of victory brought about by God for his people. The idea of victory that I I think is kind of easy for any of us to relate to in some way. Uh, What comes to your mind when I said that word before? What would you draw if you were told to write a picture of victory? For many Aussies, sport would come to mind. Or smashing your first week of school this week as school starts up again. Getting a promotion at work. Winning an argument if you're that kind of person. Or gaining freedom and victory from some difficult and negative situation that you face in your life. Beating or fighting an illness. Finding, fighting and gaining victory over addiction. God here in his word then does describe this great victory. The victory of all victories. One that is relevant not only to the people of Haggai's day, but also one that is relevant to all of God's people. Providing the church with much needed encouragement and motivation 
in the face of present darkness that persists in this world. And so this morning, I just want to open up what this victory is all about and how does it relate to us here today. And as we consider God's victory for his people, the first thing that we're going to consider this morning is the backstory to this prophecy of victory, where we discover that this victory comes in the context of a pretty dismal defeat. Haggai's fourth prophecy is unique in the sense that it is addressed to just simply one person, to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, occurring on the same day as his third prophecy. Haggai now turns to Zerubbabel and singles him out as playing an important role in God's plan for his people. I wonder if you know the feeling of being chosen and singled out for something before. Maybe you had a particular skill or ability, maybe you're just liked, and you're selected for some special task or role. It can be invigorating to feel chosen. Was there something special then about Zerubbabel? Why was he singled out here? Now it's true that he had an important leadership role in Judah at the time. He was, uh, according to the text, a governor of the area. He had a leadership role amongst the people. It's also true that he played an important role in the temple rebuilding project that we've explored these past few weeks. But that's not why he was chosen. Zerubbabel was chosen because he was part of the Davidic royal line, a family line from whom the Messiah would one day come. At the end of our passage, he is described as God's servant, as well as a signet ring. Numerous individuals in his, Israel's history bear the name of servant, of, or my servant, by God. People who often had important roles or functions in the purposes of God in this world. Abraham, Moses, and especially King David was described as God's servant. It's a key term in the Davidic covenant made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, a signet ring was a ring used by kings to stamp official documents in ancient times. It was a sign of their royal position and authority. The full significance of these titles for Zerubbabel only makes sense in the broader context of the story of Scripture. And the rocky journey Israel and Judah had traversed up until this point in their history. As touched upon in prior weeks a little, we need to remember that God's people here are a remnant people. A people who were previously who've previously faced destruction as a people and a nation, who were cast off into exile, all because they'd fallen into sin and were judged by God. The judgment of God was so severe that God even seemed to have cast aside his promises to David. Listen to what God says through Jeremiah the prophet in, in Jeremiah 22. Words spoken to Kaniah, the last king of, Is of Judah, before the exile. From verse 24 it says, As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring of my, on my right hand, yet I would tear you off 
and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom, of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country. Were you not, uh, were you, were not born, where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long, long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Pretty heavy words against the line of David and against Kaniah here, who was indeed shortly after carried off into exile. And yet in God's grace, Kaniah's grandson Zerubbabel is here a few generations on, who has come back with this remnant group of people back to the land of Israel. Zerubbabel's name means seed of Babylon or descendant of Babylon. A fitting description, I think, for someone who was born in captivity in Babylon and came out of that. I wonder if you've ever been camping before and uh, you've had a fire while you've been camping and uh, overnight the fire goes out. And, but in the morning as you sort of rumble through the, hot, uh, the, the uh, fire and the coals that have been uh, burnt out overnight, if you actually dig down a little bit, often you'll find that some of the hot coals are still there below the surface. That fire looked like it was dead and gone, and yet there are some still hot coals there um, burning away that from which you can start a new fire from. Well, the, it's a little bit like what Zerubbabel and Israel experienced. Words of rekindled hope in the near face of complete Disaster. The Davidic line had seen that there was no more hope for a Messiah, yet was not completely cut off. On a superficial level, it may seem hard for us to relate to Israel's experiences of war and exile. For our generation, at least here in Australia, has not faced this, at least not on a country-wide scale. And yet, you and I live in a sin-stained world today. And so we, we can still relate to this in a very real way. I wonder if you've ever faced a situation that's made you feel helpless or hopeless before. Circumstances that left you feeling overwhelmed and, quite frankly, defeated. There are many Christians that feel that way in their Christian walk. As they look forward to 2024... Are you positive about the year ahead? Are you positive about what God can achieve in your life, in the lives of those around you, in this world? Or do you have a defeatist attitude? Do you come to church defeated? As Christians, there are circumstances that we can face that we just want God to free us from and work in those situations. Likewise, for the unbeliever, this is particularly pointed and relevant. 
Let us not forget, forget how even we saw in Ephesians 2 there that sin itself is often described as this overpowering force, one that completely dominates the unbeliever and controls their lives, and from which many Christians still seem to be dominated by sin and sinful tendencies. As you and I head into 2024 20, together, and as Justin so well prayed before, I don't know the future. I don't know what challenges you and I might face in our individual lives. I don't know what we might face as a church. But how are we going to face those challenges when they come? How do you and I and us collectively truly hold up our heads high and live fervent, lively Christian lives, even victorious lives, full of conviction and passion for Jesus Christ? when the need for spiritual renewal is so great in our present world. And the temptation to stray from the faith and into sin so many. And how often that you and I feel fickle and weak rather than strong and courageous. Well, just like that rekindled hope for Zerubbabel, there is hope for God's people. So that's a bit of the backstory that we need to know in understanding this prophecy that Haggai speaks. Backstory that shed lights on the true significance of this turning point in the history of God's people. Next, I want to consider with you the picture of victory that God promises here. And what we find is that this victory is all-encompassing, all-consuming earth-shattering victory. Verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. What, what are we to make of this prophecy? Well, for an Israelite, the language that Haggai uses here would have reminded them of the Exodus. When Pharaoh's army chased Israel through the Red Sea and their chariots and riders drowned with the water came crashing down upon them. Likewise, the language of armies destroying each other appears in numerous Old Testament texts, including Judges 7, where Gideon, with just 300 men, defeats a large army. Do you know that story? an army that had turned against itself, having become confused. What's the point of using this language? Well, Haggai is showing that God saved his people in the past and so is a God that will do so in the future. We can trust that God is in the business of saving his people. He is the God that is the same yesterday, today and forever. Do you believe that? But Haggai's prophecy goes over and above prior historic events, predicting that all earthly kingdoms against God will be crushed, and that even heaven and earth, the whole creation will shake. The image that came to my mind when I read that verse was like a giant tumble dryer shaking everything that we know. In the days of Zerubbabel, although he was king, uh, uh, governor of Judah, he never 
became king over Judah and Israel. And actually, many generations came and went from, and, and uh, descendants from Zerubbabel came, and no Davidic king seemed to arise immediately. It's not until the New Testament and the coming of Jesus Christ that Haggai's prophecy began to be fulfilled. One that is fulfilled in Jesus both now and in the future. First, it's partially fulfilled now. In Matthew 1 that we explored last year, we see that Zerubbabel's name appears in Jesus' genealogy in a long list of names. From Zerubbabel, the Messiah did come. For the Christian, in Jesus' first coming, you and I can look back and celebrate the great victory that we have in Christ now. What is this victory? It is the victory that Jesus purchased for us on the cross, where he defeated the power of sin and the tyranny of the devil and his kingdom of darkness and ushered in God's unshakable kingdom, with the kingdom of heaven breaking into this dark world. I hear these words from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, from verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. On the cross, Satan was given a lethal blow. You see, central to Satan's devices against humanity is his accusations against us. Like someone accusing you of wrongdoing in court. For every unbeliever, the promise of these accusations is that they are correct. Satan calls out, sinner, you're not good enough for God's goodness and presence. You're a sinner under the chain of sins. Under your sins. And do you know what? He's correct. These are accusations that Satan speaks against Christians too, whispering to our soul that we're not good enough for God, making us doubt God's goodness towards us, and that our sin means that God has rejected us. But every time we meet those thoughts, the Christian has a great defense. If you're ever bogged down in, your, uh, in yourself as a Christian, stuck in sin or feeling overpowered or overcome or defeated, May your heart in those moments cry out Christ, remembering his victory on the cross for us. For the Christians stuck in sin, remind yourselves of Paul, Paul's wonderful words in Romans 8 verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God's people, we have good reason to be a people of great hope as you and I look to 2024 ahead. You and I might be standing here today or sitting as Australian citizens, but for the Christian, our citizenship lies elsewhere, our true citizenship. You and I have a greater identity, being treasured citizens of God's kingdom. 
And as citizens of God's kingdom, God graciously pours out his spirit to empower us to live as his kingdom agents in this dark world. This means that as you and I head into your year, uh, into our year, seeking to live as a Christian in our school, uh, in our universities, in the workplace, on the sports field or in our neighborhoods, as we experience the kingdom of darkness and it exerts its force in our lives and the lives of those around us, we can go out into those situations being reminded that Christ is the victor, that he is with you, and that no matter what others think or say about you, maybe because of your faith, that doesn't mean anything when it compares to what Christ has said of you and what he has made you to be. That you have a part to play in this world that God has made. That God can and indeed will use you for a force for good. You represent Christ, the King of Kings. Does your life reveal that you believe that? That you are a part of his unshakable kingdom? Is your identity in him unshakable? Second, it's this prophecy will be fulfilled when Christ returns. In his second coming. Haggai's prophecy speaks of all creation. Heaven and earth one day shaking. Clearly this part has not happened yet. There is a not yet part of this prophecy. Even two and a half thousand years on that is still yet to be fulfilled. Other Old Testament prophets speak of the great and fearsome day of the Lord. On Boxing Day, 26th of December 2004, a 9.1 magnitude earthquake known as the Indian Ocean Earthquake struck off the west coast of Sumatra, Indonesia. The earthquake struck with such force and produced such a massive tsunami that the destruction was uh, unbelievable. The tsunami travelled at something like 800 kilometres an hour and produced waves as high as 30 metres high. Travelling at such speed meant that it only took 15 to 20 minutes to reach the Indonesian coastline, giving residents no time to prepare for it. The resulting tsunami resulted in such devastation that something like 230,000 people lost their lives that day. And an estimated $10 billion worth of damage was caused. Uh, there's really shocking video footage and striking footage that I saw of one suffering man who is there uh, after the destruction. He says, everything is gone. It's a catastrophe. This can't be true. I don't have anyone left. Why have I been left? Why has God abandoned me? It's unfathomable if you haven't experienced that. I haven't experienced that to comprehend the destruction that occurred that day. And yet as spectacularly destructive as that day was, there is a greater, more world-overturning day coming when Christ returns and he brings final judgment against this sinful world. Are you ready for that day of all days? 
Will you be found safe in the refuge of Christ's salvation offered in the gospel? For every Christian, we need not worry about that coming day. But instead, it will be a day of rejoicing. For it will be the great day of God's salvation. When the final victory anthem will ring and, the, and heaven and earth will meet perfectly. Until that day, we ought to live in hope and not be surprised if we still encounter the kingdom of darkness here and now. In Matthew 13, verse 13, Jesus uh, there is he's telling about a parable of the kingdom of God and what it's like. He's trying to explain it to his audience. And he compares God's people with those outside of God's kingdom, comparing God's people to wheat and those who are not of Christ, he calls weeds. And in verse 30, he says this, Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. In that parable, he shows that the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of heaven grow side by side until that final day comes of human history. So God today has painted in Haggai a great picture of victory. How well do you and I see that picture? Is that real and alive for us? Or is it just a blurry picture that is kind of hard to make out? Maybe too far away to see properly? Is your spiritual eyesight too blurry to make it out properly? Or is what Christ has already done for us and will do for us a vivid and real reality for you. A picture that is better than any 8,000 pixel ultra high definition TV can ever produce. Is Christ's victory such a known reality to you that you can't help but have your life positively dominated by it? And are you ready for the cosmic earthquake that's coming? The coming of God's wrath against this world. Is Christ your King and Saviour? Have you put your trust in Him? Will you be found on that day unshakable because Jesus is your rock? I pray that that would indeed be true for you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful picture of victory that you've painted for us here in Haggai. Father, we confess that as Christians in this world, we can feel weak at times, overcome by the situations and circumstances that we face. The difficulties in overcoming sin in our own lives, being discouraged in the way, or facing opposition or difficulties external to us, challenges in life that are many. Father, we thank you that in Jesus here and now, your kingdom is here, that you are dwelling amongst your people, that you have saved us and poured out your grace upon us. Father, I pray that as your kingdom agents, as we head out into our week and into our year, Lord, that we would be a force for good in this world, that we would have great courage in the face of adversity, <clears throat> knowing that Christ has already won the victory and that we can stand firm in him. And Father, when we do feel overcome and even face circumstances that do overcome us, we thank you that 
that victory will one day be complete. I pray, Lord, that we would look to you for great hope and that we would be steadfast in that hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.